Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 600 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia. And our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in these regions. I'm your host from ILGA Europe's programs team, Anastasia Smirnova, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Nurbek Amurov. Hi, Nurbek. Hi, Anastasia. This is the second episode of our mini-series about empowerment of the LGBTI activist movement. In this episode, we're exploring what it means and what it takes to be supported during the highs and lows of everyday activism. We'll be taking a look at how international and foreign support can be experienced by LGBTI activists in the movement, the difference it can make, and what it takes to get and make use of that support. Joining us to chat about support and empowerment are Stefan Sparavalo from Dasesna in Serbia and Marty Huber from Queer Base in Austria. Welcome both to the front line and thanks for joining us. So Marty, your organization Queer Base, uh, which is a peer collective of queers and queer refugees uh, that provides a welcoming space for queer refugees in Vienna and beyond, has been doing this for about five years already. And for a long time, it's been a mostly a volunteer-run and volunteer-based organization. I was wondering, looking back at your journey, uh, the journey that your organization has gone through, what's your experience with tapping into international support networks? I mean, organizations like Ilga Europe, funders, others who can amplify your voices, who can make sure that you have the resources that you need to do your work. Yeah, as you said, we started like a, uh, around 2011 to build up a network within the Viennese LGBTI community on tackling and supporting the queer refugees. And we noticed that in this field of asylum, you need to professionalize in a way that you can uh, support queer refugees in in their very precarious situations uh, in a in the most efficient and uh, good way. We had in our community center the Turkis Rosalila Villa, for example, uh, queer refugees who were couch surfing because they had to leave their uh, their camps because they were not safe there. So when we started like to really work on it in 2014, 2015, uh, you can imagine when we were a very fast developing organization, when 2015, 2016, there was this big influx on, on refugees in Austria, where there were these big movements. I must say, at this time, we hardly made it on a national or no local level to set up the organization legally. Like we started, as I said, end of 2014, we registered our association in 2016 and we got our first local funding in 2016. But we were already working our asses off to to provide the support for the queer refugees, like organizing housing, uh, organizing legal support, creating these networks. And I must say, we really kind of struggled with this stepping up in the networking, often connecting to European foundations and uh, like ILGA or other organizations, because there's a lack of resources. Our daily work is already so demanding 
that the question of how to raise more funds and to to be more on the side of also well-being for us as a team, it's quite a, a challenge. And I must say we are struggling in that field quite a bit. Uh, so, yes, we did have funding from ILGA in the concern of um, homelessness for LGBTI, um, but um, these are like, this is always this question of having smaller grants, smaller projects that will give you some short relief also or extra work uh, could also be uh, because with projects it's always a little bit this uh, balancing is it extra work that you're then trying to do or is it also structurally supporting the work in the sense the things that you do that are not paid so I think we are right now in this in between and and I'm, I'm really happy to have this conversation because uh, I think it's really the sustainability is quite a question for us right now. Marty, uh, indeed, very interesting and at the same time, a challenging journey. But I would like to turn to Stefan now. Stefan, to what extent what Marty said resonates with you? Because I know that Cessna was formed around the same time, 2016. So uh, you have been doing some work also in terms of policy and community, like uh, a range of uh, activities to support the LGBTI in Serbia. To what extent all of this resonates with your organization's experience? First, uh, thank you for having me here. You know, the issues that uh, Marty brought up really are essential. And uh, I think it should be, you know, brought to the table for all of us uh, working in nonprofits, especially with uh, queer folks. So uh, when it comes to <clears throat> networking, I think really ILGA meant a world for us because, you know, we were established like we are still, I mean, we are perceived as young organization. And what is uh, most important for us is that we are, you know, fastest growing organization in Serbia and in the region of uh, Western Balkans. Of course, you know, as we are growing rapidly, in terms of uh, you know staff in terms of uh, activities we are uh, implementing it's as well uh, you know a question of uh, sustainability it is a question of you know more and more funds we uh, have to raise and uh, conferences you know and all these activities that ILGA Europe is organizing uh, is essential for us in terms of meeting new donors and uh, presenting our work to them it is as well an issue for us to see to which extent we will grow in terms of uh, you know funding and in terms of sustainability because i think that uh, donor policies uh, should be a topic for discussions and reflections and uh, what they expect from us i mean i'm not addressing you as uh, as donors uh, as ilga europe because i think you know uh, ilga helped us a lot especially since we, as we started in terms of funding the hate crime annual report that we are submitting, uh, but as well as, as some activities that we piloted like four years ago. But now for others, I think it's a, it's, it's a debate we have to have, you know, in terms of what donors expect to us, or should we be as, uh, you know, representatives of what queer people are in need, should, you know, set what are the goals, you know, and not people from embassies or people from uh, some big tech groups or whoever is funding the project. So, and this is actually maybe a topic that we should reflect upon 
more thoroughly. Yes, I can see how, uh, you know, at one point accessing support opportunities and accessing spaces where you have opportunities to coordinate and to uh, create new collaborations or meet other funders or activists is a challenge. And then once you are past that point and you've started accessing those spaces and you've started getting your support, there are new challenges coming in, right? Navigating those turbulent waters of compromising, balancing the local with the international and balancing your needs with the funders' priorities and so on and so forth. But I wanted to go back a little bit, a step back a little bit to something that really struck me in a conversation that Marty, you and I uh, had before the podcast the other day. We were talking then about queer bases experience with international support, how you relate to this international activist support network, the opportunities that you've had to receive support from international organizations. And you said something that stuck with me. Uh, you said that we haven't made it to that league yet. Could you please tell a little bit more about it? You know, what's what goes into making it to the league? What takes it from the activist to make it there? I found it to be a very vivid metaphor because we are not so much dealing with uh, the question of advocacy work in our basic work. So we're really very much focusing on day-to-day -day people, concrete people coming to our places and who, who are in very desperate situations very often. It's really this thing of when would we have time, like we always postpone these kind of things because the other things, the people that we're dealing with them much more important than, you know, going to Brussels, meeting people and so on. Like there is this vicious circle of not having enough resources to get to the resources. Even though we are included in workshops at the EASO level, uh, like it from the European Asylum Support Office, uh, we are in the boards and so on. It seems like we have a very good standing internationally. At the same time, we are also a little bit in this activist mind where you put these things second. And uh, maybe maybe it's quite telling that, for example, when in, in February 2015, when we managed to really make this breakthrough in the City Council of Vienna to say, this is a structural problem, we need to change it, we need to get funding. It took us more than one year to set up legally the organization and to get the funding, which we received, the first funding we received 2016. As you can imagine, you know, this year 2015-16, it was just crazy. It was just people coming into town and we were just not getting anywhere. And this is very, very risky and insane to work like that. And that's a little bit activist problem, I would say that it's uh, quite unhealthy to work like that. But in, in this sense, we are still, we kind of set it up on a local level, the funding, but then uh, we're still failing to, to get to this point of receiving these structural funds, for example, or receiving funding from the European or international level. And I think the other point that we sometimes are a little bit hesitant I must say, because there are very important foundations that work internationally, but are focusing on other countries that are not one of the richest countries in Europe. So that's a, that's, it is a little bit this contradiction 
that you are in one of these richest places in the world and then you're dealing with a very right-wing or extreme right government. For example, as when we started, there was the extremist right in the Ministry of Inner Affairs and you are not willing to or you're not even trying to get money from them, for example. But there are a lot of international fundings that righteously uh, focus on LGBTI activism in African countries, in Asian countries, and so on, which is really, really important. So we are also like a little bit, okay, maybe we are not addressed in some of the programs. What I wanted to also emphasize on what you just said, having resources to get to resources. Again, I would like to turn to now uh, to Stefan and ask Marty saying that uh, they're not there yet to make to that league, to tap into the international support more professionally. And I want to ask you, Stefan, how has it been for you to tap into that support? That's a tricky topic to discuss upon. So I don't know if I should be humble or I should be realistic or I should be optimistic when it comes to this topic of international support. So uh, because if someone who will listen to this podcast uh, doesn't know like the core, the very core of our organization is uh, mapping and documenting, uh, you know, hate crime incidents and, and unlawful conducts against LGBT people in Serbia. And basically we are the only one in Serbia who are dealing with data as such, you know, because we believe those are the most functional indicator of the position of LGBTI population in one's country. So, you know, when it comes to these, uh, you know, these figures, these numbers, we are publishing them in annual hate crime report. And, you know, based on our report, we are, you know, like, we are reporting with these data, with these figures to, uh, you know, to Council of Europe, to OSCE, to Human Rights Watch, uh, to European Commission uh, in Serbia when it comes to annual progress reports on European integration. So, I don't know, maybe those are the indicators that we have reached to the International League. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, it feels like we are discussing only about funding here in this podcast. But, you know, when it comes to funding, sometimes I think that, you know, main or key international actors are not so willing to, you know, recognize us as a leading organization in Serbia. Like, I don't know what they are taking this uh, and probably on some conferences, you know, that will finally take place offline, um, there will be room, you know, to discuss about that uh, topic. So maybe, maybe I think that we, we have reached the International League just and most importantly because of the work we are doing, because we are the only one doing this specific kind of work. You know, what I also want to mention from the perspective of Ilga Europe, Ilga Europe also has been evolving together with our partners and members uh, in Europe and Central Asia. And we have also been learning from you, learning by engaging with you. And over the years, we have also tried different ways how to make our support accessible to local activists. And in that sense, for example, making our regranting approaches more accessible, uh, removing certain barriers, looking back at the what the previous experience was. And in my opinion, in some cases, some national or regional crisis situations have also helped us as an international organization to look back at ourselves, what we're doing right and what we could improve better. Like it's not only funding, right? It's also 
other types of support, uh, capacity development, uh, learning exchanges. So all of that together, we have also been looking at how this kind of support is targeted, accessible, and provided when it's actually needed. Uh, we started to go already into the you know more hands-on and practical conversation about what shapes uh, the support can take and what is helpful and what is considered as valuable and beneficial contribution by external supporters to your work. So maybe this is the right moment to ask you the question about having the right support. What would it look like for you right now? And Marty, maybe you would like to chime in here. What comes to my mind is this question of matchmaking. Like, I think sometimes it's really this point of finding the different partners that could be a good fit to make, for example, EU grants. Sometimes I think it's too little knowledge about who already has this experience, who could be willing to take smaller or younger organizations in and say, yes, we can do a partnership in this kind of project. And in this also have the exchange of learning how to do this kind of um, EU fundings and so on. It is maybe not only about who who is uh, already experienced and willing to exchange, but also a matchmaking in the in the things of who would be strategical partners. I know that we are, for for example, the LGBTI refugees as a vulnerable group. We are very on top, but uh, at the same time, there's lack on on other issues. So, how can we find this? partners within the European Union, for example, and also countries like in the Balkans, where there's also a lot of programs uh, you can then make together. And maybe Ilga Europe could then be a little bit more like a matchmaking hub. I wanted to uh, I address the same question to Stefan, what the right support would look like for you right now. Actually, you know that Marty said the matchmaking, it's actually the word uh, that is resonating in my mind right now, because, you know, usually like smaller organizations, especially as ours, which has did not have a proper or well-developed or structured uh, fundraising strategy, we are always like complaining that sometimes we are unsure about our funding, you know, sometimes we are struggling from, you know, proposal to proposal, but actually matchmaking is a proper uh, coined word that I would go for as well. It's like, you know, not just in terms of provide us with a donor that will give us, you know, unanimously grant for the activities that are in, set in our strategic plan, but, you know, maybe, uh, you know, to uh, match us with uh, some other organizations that are dealing with, uh, you know, documenting hate crimes, not maybe just for queer organizations, but for maybe other vulnerable groups. And let's see how we can uh, develop our capacities, how we can upgrade our capacities in this regard, or maybe, you know, let's connect with some organization that uh, has settled the fundraising strategy for some for activities and how they're dealing with uh, issues of sustainability. So I think, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, bringing uh, to one table someone who is uh, senior in our field where we are still not key players and, you know, let's uh, learn from the best. Let's learn, let's learn from the practices that have uh, proven 
uh, to be you know right and successful so this is this is kind of a support but matchmaking is really a good word thank you marty for this i think that we will i will use this in our future you know meetings with donors and some key international actors <laughs> Yeah, same here. I love the word. I'm sure you're, you you both know, uh, but I'll just mention it here as well, that there is an opportunity for some matchmaking is coming up. It's our uh, gathering online for the second year in a row and hopefully uh, uh, switching back to offline events uh, next year. Uh, gathering uh, online conference forum uh, for LGBTI activists from Europe and Central Asia. And I know that we have spaces in the program about monitoring and documentation of hate crimes. There are spaces in the program about uh, safe housing for uh, LGBTI refugees and LGBTI people. And I know, Marty, that Queer Base is part of that, organizing that space. And there will be spaces to talk about uh, working for structural changes for fair asylum systems. So I hope you or your teammates will be joining and I hope some wonderful matchmaking will happen there as well. And now I'm looking at the time. Uh, I know that we have probably a lot of things to discuss and there are quite a few questions that I'd like to ask from you, but it's time to wrap up our episode. And we wanted to end it with a lightning round of three quick questions to both of you about you and your activism. Well, maybe we can start with Stefan this time. Stefan, I have three questions and if you could please give very quick answers, one-liners for each of them. The first question is a moment when you felt really supported and held in your activism. When we started advocating for uh, Same-Sex Partnership Act and we were brought in a group organized by ministry, we received a comment from a very influential gay person in Serbia. Finally, I am feeling that someone is advocating for me. Great. The second question. A most valuable thing or skill you've learned through your activist journey? How to craft proper message and how to communicate properly with your constituency. And the final one. Your most cherished idea that is sitting there waiting for the right moment. Project on how same-sex weddings are looking like in Serbia, eventually when Same-Sex Partnership Act is uh, being applied finally in Serbia or being in the National Assembly. Great. It gives a wonderful perspective, very optimistic horizon uh, to look forward to. Marty, we are going to have another lightning round with you now. So a moment when you felt really supported and held in your activism. I remember when there was this whole thing going down in Chechnya and we managed to network on a European level with different organizations, also through ILGA, to provide safe routes, safe passage for LGBTI victims of violence in, in the North Caucasus. I think that was just really great. Second one, a most valuable thing or skill that you've learned throughout your activism? I would say, you know, being an activist for quite some time, to professionalize and still have the mindset of an activist that can channel the anger, the love and the gaiety that we have into political strategies. I think this is something new, like I'm dealing with this identity crisis, so to say, what, what has become of me of not being this kind of activist out of professionalism. But then at the same time, I think it's very fruitful. Third one, your most cherished idea, something that's just sitting there waiting for the right moment for it to emerge. I'm a kid of the 80s, so to say. I grew up in the 80s. And I would say we will have to talk about sex and gender identity, gender performance more in more languages than we ever can have thought of. I think there's a lot to do 
on this field. And we are having a, a project in our drawers, which we try to get funding for years and we don't get it. But I will not give up because, yes, uh, let's talk about sex. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's very inspiring. You know, it's a very upbeat note to finish our conversation on. I hope our listeners uh, will also feel the vibe of inspiration and motivation and forward-looking feeling. Marty, Stefan, thank you very much for giving the time to us, joining us in this conversation. I hope it's just the beginning of our conversation. Uh, we'll take it elsewhere, probably to the gathering online. Thank you and bye for now. Bye. Bye, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. You have been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please click on the links in the episode description to find out more about the work of Dasesna in Serbia and Queerbase in Austria. And please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in next time when we'll be traveling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now. Bye.